March 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization declares COVID-19 a pandemic. And so there was an immense amount of uh, panic buying. Uh, we were getting calls to produce PPE. COVID has basically exposed the global supply chain for its weaknesses. And people are still grappling with supply chain disruptions two years later. I'm Amanda Peterson, and this is a Let's Talk MedTech special, The Global Supply Chain in Crisis. During the pandemic, supply chain disruption, a topic that once would have put most Americans to sleep, suddenly became a household conversation. It's headline news, and as Shana Leonard of Informa Markets Engineering points out, it's even become fodder for late night comedians like John Oliver. It's on John Oliver, it's an interesting topic, it's out there in the zeitgeist. So it wasn't at all surprising to find that the global supply chain crisis was top of mind last week at IME West in Anaheim, California. Throughout the three-day event, talk of the supply chain challenges and mitigation strategies came up during conference sessions, keynotes, panel discussions, booth visits, and more. Jeff Brown of Sonendo describes the supply chain as being like a funnel, and at the bottom of that funnel is a tube. Well, after COVID hit, that funnel of demand became massive, but the supply tube stayed the same. It just cannot keep up with that demand, right? We have shortages of chassis and trucks in the, in the, in the industry. We have shortages of truck drivers, obviously. Um, we're not recirculating our containers back to China. Uh, so they're having to make new containers and things like this to keep up with the flow. It's just an amazing amount of challenge um, that, that COVID has basically expose the global supply chain for its weaknesses. One such weakness is the lack of visibility into the supply chain, particularly for OEMs who really don't even know exactly who is in their supply chains. Berardina Barada of MXD shared a shocking example from a conversation he had at the beginning of the pandemic. A senior executive of a very large manufacturer said, yeah, we're not really super worried about China starting to close down at the beginning of the pandemic because we don't buy anything from China in our supply chains. <laughs> well, five, six levels down, I guarantee you they are. Or one of the equipment that they buy, that person's buying something from China. So how did the United States become so dependent on China in the first place? Well, before 2001, China's doors were basically closed to manufacturing from outside the country. Rosemary Coates of the Reshoring Institute explained that once China entered into the World Trade Organization in 2001, U.S. companies were chomping at the bit to offshore, offshore their production lines to China in order to take advantage of China's very low-cost manufacturing environment. Rosemary, who was working as a management consultant at the time, became the go-to expert for helping companies offshore to China. And then the pandemic hits. And we've got all these issues that come up. Factory shut down, import demand spikes, and I'll show you a chart in a minute. Uh, there's a container imbalance, the Suez Canal gets blocked. I mean, it's like every day I wake up and there's some other new supply chain problem. Reshoring was brought up time and time again at IME West. In particular, a lot of U.S. companies like Amazon are considering reshoring to Mexico. In fact, both sides of the Mexican-American border are flourishing right now, Rosemary says, because factories are being built on the Mexican side and warehouses and distribution centers are going up on the U.S. side. So, is this the beginning of the end of offshoring? Here's what Berardino said about it. It's not realistic to reshore everything. 
you know, and, and I don't think we have to. A lot of it comes down to geopolitical relations. Having a manufacturer offshore but in a friendly nation is a lot different than having them offshore in a contested relationship, Berardino said. We need to start thinking about like once we know who's in our supply chain, start looking at where's the risk and is there cases where either we as a nation invest, you know, everyone's aware, or hopefully aware, there's 50 billion being thrown at uh, building fabs onshore, but like what about all the equipment that goes around the fab? Well, a lot of that could be built in Europe. There's leading companies in Europe that are building it, so how do we partner with some like Germany, for example, to kind of make sure that that equipment's in place? He said reshoring considerations should focus on where it makes the most sense. Jeff Brown pointed out that historically, it was a no-brainer to offshore because there were extreme differences in terms of cost. Now, the whole offshore versus reshore decision is not so cut and dry. We're getting into a much more strategic time where we are going to need to look at various uh, raw materials, various uh, sub-assemblies and, and supply of other and select items to be reshored. It is not a, it's not going to be a no-brainer, let's just reshore everything type of situation, right? We're going to have to pick and choose our battles. And in many cases, <clears throat> the financials just don't make sense to do the offshoring anymore. And in some cases, it may not make that much sense to do the reshoring. Uh, we're going to have to do a lot of analysis in order to determine what's the optimal mix of getting these products from these various areas within the, or across the world. Right? In terms of sourcing strategies being considered, I heard a lot of people at IME West talking about a China plus one or a China plus two strategy. So perhaps companies won't be pulling out of China entirely, but they're beginning to realize that they can't put all of their eggs into one basket. As I was walking the exhibit floor of IME West, I stopped to talk to Roy Morgan of Eagle Medical. And the Eagle happens to be at a nexus point within the supply chain for our customers as a last operations processor. So we're dealing with everything from raw material pellet supply to make films into thermoform trays, paper products, Tyvek products used to seal those trays, along with components that our you know, customers want integrated into their devices. So we see variations, which is the real interesting thing, in different pieces of the supply chains. Okay. Not all, in other words, not all supply chains are created equally. Makes For sense. example, right now the electronics supply chain is just absolutely horrid. We've had several electronics integrations for PCBs going into devices where we've been quoted in excess of 35 weeks for wow. delivery. That is a project killer, right? Yeah. On the other hand, we've seen relatively mild supply chain impacts on the order of an additional, say, four to six weeks. So instead of a regular eight to you know 10 week, it might be a 14 to 16 week lead time. So those are more reasonable and understandable, but honestly, right now it runs the entire gamut, what we see, and so we have to juggle it by virtue of the worst player in the overall set of supply chains. Okay. So how do you sense. prioritize that? Mostly we have to work with our customers to have them understand who are the worst players and can they find a way to develop alternatives quickly. Right? In the regulated industry that we live in, medical device, right. that's a very big challenge because of the revalidation costs and time involved. Roy said that's why Eagle recommends that customers at the outset of product design consider multiple alternatives to their supply chain sources for materials, components, and especially sterilization. If it's a terminally sterilized medical device, always, always consider the possibility of getting two alternative modalities of sterilization simultaneously. 
that way you don't you don't have to wait in the longest line take the shortest one that type of variation can be tough on the supplier customer relationship so managing expectations for customers is key. If we overpromise and underdeliver, our name is going to be mud in the industry pretty quick. Yeah. One of the buzz phrases that kept coming up at the show was just-in-time manufacturing. That refers to manufacturers cutting costs by keeping their inventory very lean rather than building up their safety stock. So parts were coming through the door 10 minutes before going on the line in some cases. Here's what Berardino had to say about the dangers of just-in-time manufacturing in today's supply chain environment. Toyota is a famous example, right? Tons of cars were missing because the chips didn't show up. And so they end up sitting on the lot. It's not a big deal to carry chips. You know, yes, they cost money, but they don't take up a ton of space and you can give a little buffer in there. A common theme throughout IME West was the importance of adopting smart manufacturing technologies such as AI, automation, robotics, etc. Digitalizing factories is one way to tackle the visibility problem in the supply chain, says Conrad Leva of CES MII, the Smart Manufacturing Institute. You need to have a factory or plant that is digital, that is talking more real time, where you have that internal visibility before you can connect to a network and, and have the vis that kind of visibility throughout the supply chain. Digitalizing the warehouse space and transportation will also help, said Jeff Brown. Whether you guys you know, are fans of Tesla or not, I mean, Elon is um, actually transforming how we are going to be moving product around the world. That doesn't mean companies have to become fully digital all at once. Berardino shared an example of a major manufacturer of lawnmowers and compact tractors. This is a factory out in the 80s. There's a sprinkling of tech in there, but you would think like if walking through it that this is very low tech. It's actually not because what they did was they focused on the key elements that allow you to get the benefits of digital. So they produce in bulk. They'll produce tens of thousands of these, these lawnmowers um, and they guess what the demand's gonna be. You know, these are the tractors you buy in Lowe's and Home Depot and the big box stores. They don't know what the actual demand is going to be. Is it a wet spring? Is it a cold spring? Is it, you know, a lot of grass growing, no grass growing? So they end up sometimes getting phone calls saying, I need 14 of this model, because I think there's 22, 23 different versions they build. But they know exactly what's at every point in the paint process. They know what is in their inventory. They know what's on the line. They know what all the parts they have. When they get that phone call, they punch it into their system, their enterprise system, which integrates into their manufacturing system which will actually modify their production plans for the day on the fly. And so they've taken advantage of digital technology to solve problems that are the most impactful. And I think that's a piece to me is where digital plays is integrated systems is the first. Data's at the heart. And if you don't know who's in your supply chain, you can't deal with your supply chain. If you don't know how your systems talk to her, if your systems don't talk to each other, you can't actually integrate planning. But once you have that foundation in place, we always tell people is focus on your key issue. Right? So it's not about transforming your whole factory. It's about looking at where your challenges are and adopting digital to solve that problem. Kimberly Gibson of America Makes said cross-industry collaboration, like what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, is another potential solution. Uh, we were getting calls to produce PPE, okay, personal protective equipment. And because 3D printing could go really fast, um, we, but everyone's doors were shut, right? Everyone's doors were shut. So, we started calling supply chain partners in other industries to supply the medical industry. So there were a number of idle automotive companies that had raw materials. So we're like, hey, could you fire up your line and could you make us the plastic sheet 
for the face shields because there's that we're out of it. All every plastic supplier in five states, and I'm from Ohio, and most of the stuff gets made in those areas. We're out of it. So can you fire up your 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 line and make it? And that's how we got through it. Like we we reached into industries that don't serve medical in this case, and they fired them up to 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 do it. And and, and it was incredible. That got Kimberly thinking about how supply chain partners from across various industries can similarly support one another through this supply chain crisis. Ecosystems are important. They matter. They've never mattered more. Our supply chain is just a, a collection of many different little ecosystems that fit together, or in some cases don't. Kimberly says there needs to be more data sharing and also observation sharing, meaning that companies need to start sharing what trends they're seeing within their supply chains. The walls of our ecosystem are gonna get more and more clear at some point. Another key takeaway from IME West was that communication between suppliers and OEM customers has never been more important. Right before one of the keynote panel discussions, I met Tina Rosband of Crown Packaging, who had some advice of her own to share. You need to be proactive. If you wait until something is already late, um, or the customer is calling you trying to find it, you're going to lose your customers. But if you can preemptively and proactively get in front of, hey, the border crossing today in El Paso happened and we have some raw material coming up from there, it potentially could affect your timeline. They can plan. And it's been two years that they've been dealing with having to pivot and change production schedules. So they're used to it. But if you don't that is where the relationship will start to break down. So communication is definitely key. key. Yep. Just like in anything. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Marriage, friendship. <laughs> exactly. The importance of using communication to navigate the supply chain crisis also came up when I visited Aviant's exhibit booth. Karen Harrell of Aviant said COVID was the ultimate test case for what to do when all of the quote-unquote normal supply chain disruptions get amped up to an unprecedented level. But by prioritizing communication, Karen said Aviant was actually able to strengthen its relationships with customers during the pandemic. We were having uh, weekly, sometimes daily conversations wow. to be able to talk through, you know, where are things at? When are we expecting things to come in? And, and communications between not only the uh, the OEM, but you know, our conversations with the molders to let them know, and then our conversations with our suppliers and understanding where things are in the supply chain, and then if alternatives were needed, how to be able to position them. In 2020, Aviant launched Aviant Now, an online ordering and tracking platform that customers can access any time of day or night to search for material solutions, place orders, track order status, and more. We could see when customers were accessing the information online, and we were finding it was, uh, the majority of it was outside of the eight to five time. So people were needing that information and where in a normal situation, they couldn't reach customer service or their salespeople after hours, they had access to the information. So, kind of like Amazon. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you said that because although I wouldn't name that, um, the whole Aviant Now experience was built on the idea that as consumers, we're used to that experience. And so having that kind of accessibility, convenience, and even functionality 
Um, we got customer feedback on how to build the platform, and then Aviant Now was built to emulate that same experience of that B2C experience that everybody's used to. Shelly Miller of Aviant also explained how the company is filling a critical need during the supply chain crisis by developing alternative materials to help offset shortages of things like silicone and nylon. Especially for the healthcare industry, where risk mitigation is so important. Of course. So it's really critical that we have other materials that we can offer and we do that upfront with trying to help customers identify material alternatives and second sources, but certainly when things get really tight and to prevent customers from shutting down in the industry, we certainly want to be able to provide different alternatives. At IME West, Aviant launched a new medical-grade thermoplastic elastomer for medical tubing that was formulated in response to silicon shortages, sustainability concerns, as well as ETO sterilization facility closures that impacted the medical device industry in 2019. Colin Hansen of Aviant also told me about the company's specialty engineered polyketone-based thermoplastics for nylon alternatives. And we, we found these alternative materials, so we're nylon to be an issue. Polyketone, we're especially seeing that be a good application in biopharmaceutical clamps, right? Where, you know, it, it, it's, it's an easy transition for customers to make. If you missed IME West this time around, but want to make these types of connections with your industry peers and learn about how the leading manufacturing brands are dealing with challenges like the supply chain, mark your calendar for February 7th through 9th, 2023, and join us for IME West 2023 in Anaheim, California. In the meantime, visit us at www.mddionline.com for all of your medtech news. Also make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.